T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota Law School. Another crazy week, sir. It was another crazy week. Like I said, we have a broken record that goes back, what, about a year on this, don't we? <laughs> At least. <laughs> At least. Just saying that it's just just when you think you've seen it all, you haven't seen it all. With Obviously, this extraordinary testimony by James Comey. There is word tonight uh, that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, will testify – before the same committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, on Tuesday, I have, I've seen different accounts on whether that testimony will be in the open or will it be behind closed doors. Which you had on uh, with uh, former Director Comey is that you had him both in open session, which obviously all the networks covered, and by the way, it got great ratings, which I know the president pays a, a great deal of attention to. And then they went into closed session. What are your thoughts about? whether it will be open or closed? It depends on exactly what they're going to ask Sessions about, obviously. If it's confined, I think, to, to issues regarding both, you know, now what's emerged in the last few days, Sessions supposedly what, didn't, didn't disclose a third meeting he had with, with Russian nationals. If it centers on those types of issues, if it centers on, on some details regarding any type of investigations, into Russian connection, um, into U.S. elections, maybe some public. But, but a lot of, I think, at this point is going to start to get at, I think, some private stuff, too, which is why I don't think it's going to be um, completely open to the public because it will be some things in terms of what the Justice Department and the FBI are doing in terms of, again, the ongoing investigation of Russian involvement in U.S. elections. And even, I think, they probably don't want to have too much disclosed publicly regarding any Justice Department investigations surrounding, um, let, let us say, uh, any of the, uh, you know, the Trump, you know, Trump's activities or subordinates, in, um, you know, since he's become president. So, so I find it hard to see how much can really be made public at this point. Well, you know, obviously, if it is public, I mean, I think that some of the questions that'll be asked that I think would be just fascinating is, is you know, a number of senators asked. Uh, Director Comey, why, if Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Sessions, is supposed to have been recusing himself from all things involving the Russian investigation, and the president says that Comey was fired because of the Russian investigation, why was the attorney general involved in Comey's firing? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one. Uh, The other thing that would be fascinating to hear, too, is that uh, at one of these meetings with President Trump, uh, that, that Director Comey described, uh, he described, and I think it was the second meet. It might yes. be the third meeting. He, he he describes, you know, a room full of you know top level officials, and he has all of them leave, including the Attorney General, and then he goes on into I think the Flynn situation, mm-hmm. and 
first of all, I guess I guess the attorney general could verify that was true. Although I think there are plenty of people that can verify that was true. But Comey then said, you know, the next time he saw Attorney General Sessions, he said, "You can't leave me alone with the president," which is a remarkable one of the more you know there were a number of remarkable statements there. But certainly, you you could see what Attorney General Sessions would say when, when asked about that. Right, and that's the part that I think you could ask about because. Uh, as you point out correctly, Sessions was supposed to be completely out of the um, any of the involvement with sort of the Russian connection investigations, and that would be the part in terms of they could ask about that. You know, you know, why did you backtrack on this? What apparently looks like he was backtracking on that promise, and then I, and so I think all that becomes legitimate in terms of figuring out what role he's really had. But I think I also want to bring up here at this point is. The other story involving Sessions that came up earlier this week, where Sessions apparently offered to resign um, at right. one point, you know, because of what appeared to be Trump's displeasure, you know, with Sessions also for basically taking himself out of the Russian investigation, and and so I think what we're going to see to the extent that there's public testimony. Um, it's going, to, it's going to be, I think, centered on that. You know, what was the attorney general's actual role in terms of the um, of the Comey firing? Um, you know, did he did he offer to resign? Did he offer to resign? Um, is he truly out of supervising of the Justice Department investigation um, um, that's being headed up by, by by Robert Mueller? I think those become the questions that become public. Uh, the and I think all that's important because one of the things that I thought that was really significant um, about, and there's a lot of things that were significant about, about the Comey testimony on Thursday, was a shift in terms of what's going on now, is that while still I think many people are concerned all about the issue of, of Russian involvement in U.S. elections and Trump administration officials' connections with Russia, what the discussion started to turn to now as a result of that testimony was increasingly all about obstruction of justice by Donald Trump. And so that's a, a significant change of tone where it's, it's now trying to figure out exactly what was Trump trying to accomplish when he dismissed Comey and trying to put together other pieces of the puzzle. And what I find fascinating about that is that even the conservatives and Republicans now um, who are defending Trump are on the defensive. They now have to respond in terms of addressing you know, whether or not there's enough out there on, in terms of obstruction, obstruction of justice. Pardon me. Well, I think, you know, and I think the Sessions thing is also, um, you know, th- this apparent offer of resignation also came as um, not only the u- issue you mentioned, but also uh, the president on Twitter was was bashing the Justice Department right. for, for, you know, reworking the, the travel ban. Yes. Uh, and, and so he was bashing, well, it's his Justice Department. <laughs> Trying <laughs> so, to salvage the travel ban before the Supreme right, Court. Right, but, but he's bashing the, the way that the Justice Department redid it. But that's, again, it's his Justice Department, and, and Sessions is the head of that. Right. What I think is also really interesting here is that Jeff Sessions, as a senator, was the first United States senator to support Donald Trump yes. way before anybody else did. Yes. Uh, back in February of 2016, think about that. Yes. And, and so that's that's a really uh, remarkable situation as well. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens there. I do want to go over here um, and let me just make sure. One of the things that, that obviously the, this 
you know, with the Comey hearing and the Comey testimony, uh, extraordinary ratings, extraordinary interest. But there's a new poll out tonight uh, in the Huffington Post. The headline is, um, let me get to the headlines. I think it's more Americans trust uh, James Comey than trust Donald Trump. Okay, so and then they give the um, they give the percentages here, mm-hmm. and the percentages are. Let's see, get down here. By a 20-point margin, 46% to 26%, Americans say Comey is more honest and trustworthy. Mm-hmm. However, when you go down into the poll and you ask by um, Clinton voters, right. Clinton voters, when asked that question, 89% of the Clinton voters say that James Comey is more trustworthy than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. When you ask the Trump voters... Seventy percent, so that's still a gap, you know, because you have eighty-nine percent of the Clintons. Seventy percent say that he is more, or that the president is more trustworthy than James Comey. Yes, which there's a slippage there, but it's still seventy percent is is a significant number, in my opinion. It is, it is, and and we're continu- and what we haven't seen yet, and the Comey hearing is fascinating on this. We're not seeing yet a significant breakage you know, in terms of the Republican base um, and the hardcore Trump base in terms of their continuing to support Donald Trump at this point. And that's significant because it's not going to be until the base starts to break, until you start to see Republicans in Congress start to break from Trump, um, will you see, I think, the political dynamics of, 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 of all this change. Right now it still has, I think, a powerful um, you know, partisan aspect to it, you know, where at the end of the hearing on Thursday, you had Republicans and Trump supporters willing to say, well, the jury's in, nothing happened. That's what Donald Trump's, you know, you know Trump's tweet was, what, 100% vindication. And Democrats basically saying that, that the person is guilty, there's obstruction of justice. And so that, that, that divide hasn't broken yet. And it will be curious to see as the investigation goes on over the next several months, and, and it's going to go into next year, you know, you know how long you know, the, the polarization um, continues in terms of you know, getting us results like this. All right. My guest, Professor David Schultz, we do have to take a break. Uh, I think I'd like to go more into this poll because I do think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and l- let's talk later also about the president's tweets because, once again, this past week they have provided some fodder both for his supporters and his critics. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Along with uh, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, on a Saturday evening, we are talking about a poll that just came out tonight that breaks down um, who believes Comey, who believes Trump. Uh, according to the headline, more people believe Trump. But when you get into this poll, uh, it's fascinating because it really does break down uh, Trump supporters do not seem to to be budging at this or, or not too much. Here's another question from that poll. Uh, do you think it was appropriate or inappropriate for President Trump to ask James Comey to pledge loyalty to him? Clinton vo- voters say um, it was or it say 93 percent of Clinton voters say it was inappropriate. Seventy two percent of Trump voters say it was appropriate. Um, so again, it it kind of goes to how deep seated th- this this entire situation 
is right now. Um, I do want to, you know, uh, maybe after the bottom of the hour break, get into this issue of obstruction of justice. And was was the Comey leak a real leak? And what constitutes a leak? But I do want to ask you about the president. Uh, one of the things he said at that news conference, and, and he's tweeted that it's a complete vindication, but he's also called Comey a liar and, and a leaker. Uh, so it seems that he is taking um, – he's saying it's vindication, but he's also slamming other parts of, of what Comey is saying. Maybe I'm not making my point very clearly. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? I, I, I sort of am. Okay. And, and part of it actually does tie to what you want to talk about when we come back afterwards about the whole concept of obstruction of justice. But let's sort of break it. But we'll do that after the break, obviously. But a couple things here. First, I don't think it was a total 100% vindication in the sense that if the hearings were to – if the hearings were to end tomorrow and we were to have to do a vote or, and on Thursday, I meant to say, if the hearings were to have ended Thursday and one had to take a vote at that point and say, okay, do we have enough proof that Donald Trump did something? Um, certainly the answer is no. And, and so in the sense that did, did, did Comey um, provide important information that would be valuable to, um, to Robert Mueller and to Congress for investigating um, perhaps, perhaps obstruction of justice or any illegal behavior. Um, yes, I think there's enough to keep the investigation going forward. Um, and so Trump was wrong on that. Second, I think that in, that in order, what, what Trump is trying to do is, I think, is a couple of different things. And one of them would be essentially impeach, in, in, impeach. Um, Comey by saying that he's that he's a liar um, on one level um, and say that factually what he said certainly wasn't true in terms of what he was doing and that's important in terms of again um, the issue of, of the legal requirements for obstruction of justice but second at the same time he's now trying to perhaps accuse uh, of, of Comey of himself doing something illegal by actually being a leaker um, and maybe questioning his motives, that maybe he's just trying to be a, what, a disgruntled former employee who's trying to save himself. So I think it was kind of a two-tracked approach of going after Comey on Thursday night and on Friday. All right. Uh, and we want to get more into that. Um, let me ask you this issue of this extemporaneous note-taking, uh, or, or these, these notes, like, you know, right after these meetings. Uh, one of the more really stunning moments, I thought, said was when um, – Comey was asked why he took the notes immediately after the first meeting with Trump. And there was a couple – I think he had one reason, two reasons. Reason three was the person himself that he left that meeting convinced that he needed to record it because he, he thought the president – or the then-president-elect would lie about it. And, I mean, it, it, to me, that was really just a jaw-dropping moment mm-hmm. here. Legally, what – these kinds of notes – do they matter and do they carry weight? Yes, they do. Now, first off, I should say, as, you know, I'll say right off the bat, as somebody who worked in government for quite a few years, I know on all critical meetings that I had, uh, and I sort of did quasi-law enforcement for a while, um, I took notes on a lot of stuff just to have in the file because that stuff would be potentially important later on if you went to court um, in terms of being able to establish why you did certain things for whatever purposes. And so that doesn't surprise me that somebody would want to have notes, and especially at that level, probably meeting with the President of the United States, you probably want to do, do take notes. But it does speak to 
something in terms of the fact that Mueller had suspicions. And remember, I mean, Comey had suspicions. Comey, I mean, Comey, I mean, Comey had suspicions. And remember that Comey's was sort of privileged to knowing that we were doing this investigation back in the during the Obama administration during the election last year regarding Russian influence in the elections. And so he's already got a bunch of information he knows that's going on in terms of that those investigations. He he meets with Trump, and you know sometimes you know and that's what sort of came out to me when I listened to that statement is that he had an intuition, a really good intuition that he really needed to cover his tracks because something was going to happen. And and so again, none of this surprises me. Just first in the idea of taking those notes uh, at, at that kind of level and, and for just law enforcement purposes, but also. The more deadly part I think you're getting at is the fact that he had some gut intuition that he was going to need to do this. Right. And just quickly, Comey actually has a history of this type of note-taking. Was actually, there was a sort of very famous situation when he was, um, uh, I think, an assistant attorney general on, in the Bush administration. And he, you know, in a situation involving John Ashcroft where these notes were critical as well. So it appears that that uh, attorneys general and and the courts really look at these kinds of notes and take them very seriously. Yeah, they are. They they are they are um, instant impressions. They are good ways of memorializing what people are actually were thinking at a particular time, and they just become incredibly useful in terms of evidence for assessing character, assessing motive, a whole bunch of different things. Because a lot of times, what we get down into crimes. Um, and get down questions about behavior is what were the intentions, what were the purposes, the motives for why people did things, and those notes might give us lots of good information. All right, we're going to take a quick break, uh, give you some weather because it is still pretty steamy out there. When we come back, we'll have more with David Schultz. Uh, Are there tapes? Are there not tapes? Let's go deeper into this issue of the leak. Is this a leak? If it's your own memo, is it a leak? And also the issue of obstruction of justice. That's all coming up after this on News Radio 830. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It It is 837 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, we are talking about and trying to dissect the uh, testimony of James Comey, uh, the comments from President Trump, the tweets from President Trump. Let me ask you, are there tapes? Are there not tapes? <laughs> I suspect there are tapes. Be- See, I think there aren't tapes. And uh, Okay, you, you tell me your reason why there are tapes. You think there are I tapes. I think there are tapes for two reasons, well, at, least, at least a couple of reasons. One is that presidents um, have those tapes so that they have permanent records um, of conversations, of which eventually many of them work their way into presidential um, 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 libraries at some point, you know, over a period of time. And so, and so that's one purpose. Um, it's sort of, let's say, historical purposes, is that this is preservation of history. Two, you know, we know that the Obama administration, as did previous administrations, presidents just routinely tape all record all these all this information again so they have records um, again not just for historical reasons but just so they know what was going on in meetings that way they can go back and refer to them even if they weren't taking notes themselves and so so those are the reasons why um, I am pretty sure um, that at least some of the conversations were taped I think that's protocol in the White House in the Oval Office all right I guess my question is when when the president's um you know, when his spokespeople have been asked about it, they have 
been, you know, have not answered the question. And then when he was asked about it three or four times at the news conference on Friday, uh, he kept saying, I'll let you know soon. And then finally he said, you'll be very disappointed. And that was his response. And I, you know, we'll let you know soon. I think everyone's going to be very disappointed. I, I think everybody wants to hear the tapes. They do want to hear the tape. So, I mean, what could that possibly mean? Or is this is this sort of the master showman keeping us all on the hook? Well, it's like the master showman who kept saying that he was going to release definitive proof for several years that Obama wasn't born in the United States. Um, and he sort of was able to draw people along. Okay, so a couple of possibilities here. So it's some, this might be some showmanship. A couple of things. Why are they all denying it? Because if, in fact, they actually acknowledge that the tapes exist, they're going to have to turn them over. That's Take us back to Watergate. The defining case in Watergate was U.S. versus Nixon, where after it became clear that Nixon was tape-recording the conversations, he refused to turn them over to Congress, refused to turn them over to a special prosecutor. That case goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules in U.S. versus Nixon um, that whatever executive privilege the president has in not turning those tapes over must give way to the needs of a criminal investigation. You know, I tell my law students that rarely are there precedents that are foursquare for something in the future. Um, U.S. versus Nixon will be about as foursquare of a precedent perfect that you could ever find. So if they acknowledge tapes, he's going to have to turn them over. And so at this point, they're not going to acknowledge um, if, if, in fact, they exist. Now, if they don't exist, this is really interesting, because if they don't exist, now it's going to come down to, Trump's word versus Comey's word on several critical things. And it's going to be an assessment of, of credibilities and who has more of a motive to lie or not tell the truth. That's not going to probably work to Trump's advantage. And so, so Trump, A, better hope there are tapes um, that will support his side of the story, because um, otherwise he will be handicapped, I think, significantly going forward in terms of, of, of again, assessing um, or resolving the issue of who's to be trusted, him or Comey. All right. Obviously, we'll, we'll have to see about that, and, and we, we don't know. I mean, I think this thing is going to go on for months, don't you? Oh, this this will not end anywhere near soon at this point. And so what we're going to see is this, this dragging out, I think, a very, very long time, clearly into 2018. And I think it's critical about this is beyond sort of, again, as I mentioned on the, what, the first half of the show where I said that the hearing the other day, you know, shifted the discussion now to the issue of, of obstruction of justice. I think the other thing this does is guarantee that the Trump administration's policy agenda is going to continue to get um, sidelined, you know, at least through this year and probably into next year, is that the big things that he wants to be able to move on aren't going to happen. Nobody realized that what this week was supposed to be, or was it Thursday or whatever day it was, it was supposed to be infrastructure day. It was supposed to be the day that, ever, that the president's going to talk about infrastructure. And well, I think he did. He I, did. I, maybe but, nobody was listening. That's exactly the point. Is the point is that no one's listening. He talked about it, but no one listened. No one cared. No one, else, no one also remembers that on Wednesday that the president announced his new, his new um, FBI director. Um, so all, all, everything he wants to do is getting overshadowed at this point. Uh, his chances of being able to get uh, the Senate to do anything in terms of repeal of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, with his health care plan, are precarious. His ability to be able to move his budget proposals through, precarious at best. 
moving on tax reform, same thing, and now the same thing on infrastructure. His, the main features of his, of his, let's say, policy agenda are just about all dead on arrival. All right. Let's talk about this leak situation quickly, because I guess any time you, you give something confidential to a reporter, it's a leak. Yet you have situations and even just recently where somebody is being prosecuted, a young woman's being prosecuted for, um, you know, giving a reporter something that was uh, classified and confidential. This is obviously a leak at one level, this Comey turning over his own a copy of his own memo, as I understand it, to his friend to give to the New York Times. What, are, what kind of leak is this? Well, we know leaks occur all the time, and leaks oftentimes, even though they're not supposed to occur, presidents sometimes want them to happen as far as what? Getting information out, testing, you know, basically sort of you know, t- test-driving ideas, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also important to understand that some leaks fit into the category of what we would call whistleblowing, that there are many circumstances where that, of course, you do want somebody to, you know, to, 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 to do a leak in order to disclose potential um, illegal or criminal behavior that's occurring in, in government. And that's where I would put this leak at this point, is that it is done not for personal profit, not for personal gain, but perhaps for the purposes of the fact that the official channels of the government have closed in terms of being able to get information out about talking about possible illegal behavior. And so Comey uses this as an opportunity to be able to do that. Additionally, I would argue... And and he said he he did it because he wanted a special... He thought that the time had come for a special prosecutor to be appointed, and he got it. Exactly. The second thing is is if Congress um, testify, or requires him to come and testify, you know, at that point he's, he's now being told to come and say what he knows, um, to, to basically disclose information, and Congress has the right to be able to compel witnesses to disclose certain types of information. Now, classified material, they may opt to say, we're going to do a closed hearing, which is what happened you know, on Thursday afternoon, but it's certainly Congress's constitutional prerogative as part of its ability to gather facts and to, and to police the, the agencies that it's funding to say, we want you to come and tell us what you know. And so to the extent that he is disclosing any information to Congress, including a memo, is, is also supported by Congress's constitutional authority to be able to uh, request information. And then I would also throw in here is that there are federal laws that do require um, the FBI director as well as other government agencies to report information over to Congress. Right, but he this, this is he was giving it to a reporter. Does it matter that it was his own, you know, his own document, his own words, his own recollections, as opposed to perhaps something that Jeff Sessions had written up? That's right on the borderline there. Again, I would still say that he's probably within his prerogative to do this as a whistleblower in terms of saying that he was worried that that the criminal investigation or any investigations were potentially being shut down by, by illegal or improper behavior in the White House. But to the extent to which this memo or the memos that he was keeping are considered to be government property versus personal property. That's a very, very thin line um, in terms of being able to draw those distinctions. Okay. All right. My guest, Professor David Schultz, we do have to take a a quick break. We do want to switch gears here. I do want to ask you about uh, some extraordinary testimony on Friday in Ramsey County District Court. uh, Officer Yanez, Geronimo Yanez, 
getting up and testifying in his own defense, saying he feared for his life when he shot and killed Philando Castile. Closing arguments Monday. The, this could, is likely going to go to the jury on Monday. Uh, we'll ask Pressure Schultz about the fact that uh, Officer Yanez decided to testify in his own defense, something you don't see that often in big stakes criminal cases. More with Pressure Schultz after this on News Radio. It is 8.51, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, shifting gears here, uh, we want to talk about the trial of uh, Officer Geronimo Yanez, the officer who shot and killed Philando Castile last year. That trial wrapping up a dramatic testimony on Friday from Officer Yanez, who took the stand in his own defense, saying he feared for his life. He thought he was going to die, and that is why he took the actions that he did, firing at Philando Castile. I believe he shot seven shots, or fired seven shots. Five of them hit Castile. Two of them hit Castile in the heart. You know, one thing, and before we get into this, uh, Professor Schultz, it's interesting that, that that some stories really, I mean, that has actually gotten less play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trial of Bill Cosby uh, gotten less play uh, because of the, the drama surrounding the president. Even even here, you know, in in Minnesota, it's it's kind of remarkable. It is. I was going to say, because the Bill Cosby story is actually a very, on one level, a pretty significant story in its own right, although you could still argue and say that what the president is doing um, is far sort of more significant than when Bill Cosby do, doing and, or did in terms of how many people it affected. But, but yes, the Bill Cosby could have been a, a fascinating thing for us just to talk about tonight, too. Absolutely. All right. Let me ask you, um, how unusual is it in in a criminal case? And I've covered a lot of trials. You obviously have have, have studied uh, and, you know, are a law professor. It's not that often you get a defendant take the stand. You don't usually have that happen, even though, especially in murder cases, juries really want to hear, and I'll say not just in murder, but a lot of cases, really want to hear what the defendant has to say, even though they're not compelled to testify, and they cannot draw any inferences from a defendant's failure to testify regarding the person's guilt. But this is a little unusual, and let me explain why. Because in a lot of criminal trials, oftentimes what's going on is that the the issue is is factually what actually happened and what you don't want to do is put somebody on the witness stand who might is going to be required to either tell the truth or perjure themselves in terms of explaining factually what was going on um, what's unusual about this case is everybody factually knows what happened what happened is in terms of he said that he was you know that um, the officer stops uh, Castillo and he shot him seven times What's really important to understand here instead is it's about the state of mind. It's about what was the officer thinking um, in terms of when he did that. And that's why it was so important to put him on the stand. A, because you have to ascertain intent in order to prove somebody guilty of a crime. But two, under the framework of the Constitution, uh, police officers are allowed to use deadly force if they have reasonable belief that the person um, poses an immediate threat to them or the public. And so part of him testifying is to be able to put him on the stand to ascertain what he was thinking and how he was um, assessing the situation. And so that's why I think he was put on the stand from sort of a legal strategy point of view, on top of which 
jurors are generally more sympathetic um, to police officers than other types of defendants. And him going on the stand and saying, I really feared for my life, um, I thought that was incredibly compelling testimony. And it's going to now require jurors, when they go to the witness stand or go to the, um, the jury box, have to actually have to say to them, was the officer so unreasonable in his belief um, about fearing for his safety that it essentially amounted to what? Um, um, unjustified use of force and therefore manslaughter. Right. Well, I, I you know, I, and I haven't talked to people about the Inez testimony. I did talk, um, and, you know, our, our reporter Bill Hudson has done a great job of covering this trial, mm-hmm. did report back to the newsroom uh, on that uh dash cam video, not the Facebook video, but the dash cam video that that shows Officer Yanez firing really almost within seconds of approaching this car. You know, his interpretation, and and he said that most of the people in in the courtroom felt it was very damning. And, you know, oftentimes when, I guess when I've seen defendants testify, it's when the case isn't going their way. <laughs> right. And that's exactly the point I was getting at here, too, is that if you just look at the other evidence that was presented there, um, it didn't look very good at this point. It looked like um, an overreaction by the officer putting him on the stand um, gives him the opportunity for him to tell his side of the story um, with the hope that jurors, again, when they go off to deliberate, will say, well, I wouldn't want to second-guess what the officer was actually thinking in that situation. And so I think it was a smart move, but a smart move predicated upon the fact that I would say that the trial wasn't going very well um, for the defense at this point. Right, because they don't have to put him on the sand, and also they don't have to prove anything. And you've got two very you've got to, the whole legal team that he's got is really an extraordinary one. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of the, I'd say it's one of the best criminal defense teams I have seen in a long, long time. All right, and that that goes. And you, normally, closing arguments, which are set to take place on um, Monday, uh, those usually go maybe half a day. Half a day, and so I could see actually. Um, Half on that, the judge giving some jury instructions either right before lunch or right after lunch. Uh, but barring anything unforeseen, I think it goes to the jury early afternoon on Monday. All right. And I do not know yet if that I, – I haven't asked Bill. I'll have to check if, if the jury is sequestered in this case. Um, one would think in such a high-profile case that it might be. But, uh, I, I, you know, I, once it goes to the jury. I know it's not right now, but uh, – Actually, a good question. I've been asking a couple people about that also, and I don't know what the answer is on that one. I mean, I would think on this one, given the amount of coverage that there would be, that they probably should have sequestered them. Uh, but they also have to balance in terms of how much time do you want to sequester people away from their family. I actually thought this trial moved far more rapidly than I thought it was going to. Well, it to. did, absolutely. They, they, they were predicting a much longer trial at that. Well, listen, uh, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure, and you will also be a guest on WCCO-TV Sunday morning. Yes, uh, goodness, goodness knows what's going to happen overnight. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But anyhow, we'll see everybody tomorrow. Okay, great. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, the one and only Professor David Schultz. Oh, I did want to mention his blog. Uh, he writes on his current blog uh, about the current Trump situation and the issue of obstruction of justice. So uh, check that out. It's always informative, always does a great job. I do want to thank, and I, I did neglect to, to say thank you uh, last week because of all the craziness and all of the breaking updates we had because of that attack in London. I want to thank the producer of this show, Susan Blanche, and also the two studio coordinators, Jonathan Lowe and Kevin Reed. They always do a fabulous job. Have a wonderful day, everyone. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.